This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Pada Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were, two t- there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. This is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. Lord, help us to see your glory and your greatness. Help us to understand difficult things. Help us to respond to you rightly, uh, to believe the gospel Uh, and to receive the good news of Jesus Christ by faith. We ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. There are two twins. Both are born into a Christian home. Both grow up in the church. Both hear the gospel. But one becomes a Christian and the other doesn't. Why is that? In many ways, that's the question or the problem or the scenario that this chapter here, Genesis chapter 25, is facing. Two twins, both brought up in a family that knows the promises of God, uh, and one grasps hold of those and the other doesn't. Why is that? 
Well, the answer to those questions are difficult. Uh, And as one guy in his uh, commentary on Genesis says, the solution to those questions and the solution to the answers to those questions is not to run. The remedy is not to run, but to pay careful attention to what God is saying. And if the things that this passage and other passages of the Bible uh, make us angry or disillusioned, the best question for us to ask is, why are we angry and why are we disillusioned? And it's helpful, I think, to remember that just because something doesn't make sense to us, just because we don't like something, it doesn't mean that it's untrue. So turning to Genesis chapter 25 then, why these two sons with two completely different responses? Well, we take up in Genesis 25, uh, Abraham and Sarah have, uh, have left the story and we're following now the lives of Abraham's and Sarah's son Isaac and his wife Rebecca. They, like Abraham and Sarah, are waiting for a child and Rebecca, like Sarah before her, is barren. But Isaac, unlike his father Abraham, Abraham who dealt with the situation by taking things uh, into his own control, Isaac deals with this situation of a barren wife by praying to God and God in his mercy answers Isaac's prayer and Rebekah becomes pregnant. And yet, as soon almost as that excitement has come, there's this trouble, there's this concern. The pregnancy is incredibly painful and Rebecca is worried about what's going on. You can imagine in a time where people didn't have ultrasounds, where, where a lot of children and mothers died in, in childbearing, you can imagine that it would have been quite unsettling to have kind of felt this in, incredible pain uh, in, your, in, in the womb. And so Sarah is, uh, Rebecca sorry, is wondering what is going on. She's wondering if the child is going to die and if she's going to die. She says, why is this happening to me? Which sounds a bit mundane, frankly. It's probably something more drastic than that, like, if I'm going to have this baby, why is it like this? Why am I still alive? She has this pain in her womb and she doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know what we know, which is that there are, she's pregnant with, with twins. She goes to inquire of God and God tells her what's going on. God says in verse 23, Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. There's actually more here going on than we might first think. Is it simply a case that God knows the future? Is that what God is saying uh, to Rebecca? That he knows the future, that he knows beforehand that Jacob will take over from Esau, that Jacob will take his older brother's inheritance and his older older brother's position and honour? Or is it the case that God has determined what's going on? Does God just know or has God determined it? Is it God's plan that Jacob will get the blessing and Esau won't? Well, in the light of Genesis so far, you'd have to say that it makes sense to understand that what's going on is God's plan. Everything in Genesis has so far has been at God's initiative. God chose Abraham out of nowhere. He was living in 
wherever it was, and God called him out of that land to, to follow him. It was God who spoke, God who intervened. It was God who promised Abraham a son. And not Ishmael, the, the son that Abraham got of his own will and of, and of his own making, but Isaac, the son that God had promised. So far in Genesis, the things that have happened have been by God's promise and God's determination and God's plan. The Apostle Paul takes up this passage in Romans chapter 9 and it's worth turning to that passage, to the New Testament, uh, to Romans, which is after Acts, which itself is after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Acts, Romans, Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, verse 10, Paul uses the example of Jacob and Esau to answer this question of, of, of what's going on. Was it that God foresaw something or was it that God had a plan? And he says, not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Paul says that God's choice of Isaac and not Esau was not based on anything that they had yet done or on any uh, knowledge of what they would do, but it was based on God's choice, God's free choice. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Or as Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. God is a God who is sovereign. God is a God who chooses. He doesn't choose on anything about us, but he chooses on his free choice. It is in fact the thing that makes God absolutely God. We live in an age that values very highly, very, very highly, uh, individual autonomy. I will do what I want whenever I want to do it. And so when it comes to religion and spirituality, it's our choice, what we want to do. We sit down, we look at the evidence, and as one person says, we find a God that we think that we can live with. I like that God, I'll go with him. We think we're doing God a favour by believing in him. Is that the Bible's picture of God? Is the Bible's picture of God a picture of a, a God who is sitting in heaven, chewing his fingernails, desperately hoping that someone will respond to his generous offer? You see, in thinking like that, we rob God of his very godness. He becomes subservient to us. He serves us rather than we serve serving and depending on him. No, the Bible says that if we come to God, it's because God calls us. He draws us. He compels us. He woos us with his extravagant love. You might feel God calling and drawing you. And if so, if you turn to Christ, that's because 
of God's love and mercy. Yes, it's because you've responded, absolutely, but the ultimate cause, the first cause, is God's great love and mercy. Does that make us robots? No, it doesn't. The Bible never deals with God's sovereignty like that. It always says, God is 100% in control and you are 100% responsible. It's not 50% God and 50% you, or 100% God and none percent you. It's 100% God and 100% our responsibility as well. The Bible says, repent and believe in Jesus. The Bible says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is, God absolutely calls us to respond, but he does so in such a way that when we look back at everything that's happened in our lives, we see that it wasn't us who sought out God, but God who sought out us. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Or as Jesus says in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes, I will never drive away. Or no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And yet at the same time, Jesus says, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Are you a Christian? If the answer is yes, it's because God has sought you, called you, drawn you, called you by name and you are his. He gave you to his son to redeem you. Are you not a Christian? Then look to Jesus. Don't ask, am I chosen? God's will is this, that whoever looks to the Son shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day, says God. Don't ask, am I chosen? Turn, repent, believe in Jesus, look to the Son. Is God sovereign? Yes, God is absolutely sovereign. Are you responsible to repent and believe in Jesus? Yes, you are absolutely responsible. Our lives are shaped by God's great plan and purpose. But the Bible never holds that up in such a way that it eliminates our own personal responsibility. Uh, and in the rest of this chapter, in fact, we're going to see two ways that personal responsibility are still at play. They're still important. Our lives are shaped by God's plan and purpose, but our lives are also influ influenced by those around us and our lives are also determined by the decisions that we make. It's not that one is true and the others are not, but all three are true at the same time. We're shaped by God's plan, we're influenced by people around us, and the decisions that we make shape our lives as well. But God's plan and God's purpose uh, is always the most fundamental so before either Jacob or Esau was born, God had a plan. Well, finally, the two boys are born according to God's plan, and the firstborn was Esau, who we're told resembled a hairy cloak. Uh, 
I had a friend who <laughs> used to be called Esau at school, uh, which is very unfortunate, but he always could laugh at it, so that was great. Uh, Esau was, uh, resembled a hairy cloak, and uh, after him came Jacob, who was grasping Esau's heel. And grasping at his brother's heel seems to be uh, a kind of a, a sign of things to come. Jacob will be a usurper. He's always going to be trying to take what belongs to his older brother. The two names uh, kind of bear out the two traits of the two brothers. Esau is this hairy man of the wild, uh, and Jacob is this usurper, this deceiver. And as the two boys grow older, that competitiveness between them is exacerbated by their parents. So we're told in verse 27, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So these two parents were divided in, in, in the child that they kind of loved and esteemed. We'll see uh, in the rest of this chapter and over the coming weeks the competition that kind of there was between these two brothers, the rivalry. And what's important is to see that that competitiveness and rivalry wasn't created in a vacuum. Their parents divided them by taking sides and by having favourites. So the lives of these two brothers were shaped by God's great plan and purpose, but they were also shaped by the people around them. So too our lives are shaped by the people around us. Our society is a hedonistic society, that is, it lives for pleasure. It's very easy in a society like that to become people who live for pleasure. It's just, you just absorb it. It's like if you have a friend, I had a friend who loved football. I'm a football tragic because I had a friend who was a football tragic. I couldn't have cared two hoots about, about uh, football before that. If you've got friends who love cars, you'll probably end up as a person who loves cars as well. Our lives are shaped by people around us, for good and for ill. But we also shape the lives of people around us too. We, that is, we not only absorb what others are doing around us, but other people absorb what we do around them. So you might know that well-known proverb, train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he will not turn from it. That works positively and negatively. So if you train a child to live well, when they, uh, when they grow up, they will live well, generally speaking. And if you train a child to live poorly, they'll live poorly. There's always exceptions to that rule, but like all proverbs, it's generally true. We shape the people around us. And often we shape the people around us not just by the things that we tell them that they need to do and believe, but actually by the things that we say and do when we're not intending to shape them. So we sit down and we say to them, church matters. It's really important to be part of a, a Christian community and to meet regularly with God's people. But if you never meet with the people of God... They might believe that church matters, but they certainly won't live like it does. Or if you say that church matters, but then you spend your entire life around your ch children complaining about church, 
Goodness me, the songs were boring this morning, weren't they? Or uh, as, uh, as I read from C.S. Lewis the other day, sixth-rate music, you know, and, and fifth-rate lyrics or something like that. <laughs> if you spend your time complaining, you might say that church matters, but your children won't believe it, and the people around you won't believe it either. But if you come early every week and you stay behind and you talk to people and you're always lending a hand to people and you're always talking with such love and affection for the people that you meet with, then people pick that up. And people are shaped by that. Or you might say, don't be racist. But if you always talk disparagingly about people of other races... Oh, those Aborigines, they always blah, blah, blah. Or those Muslims, those black people. If you speak like that, your children might truly believe that being racist is wrong, but they won't actually know that they're being racist when they disparage people of other nationalities. Don Carson uh, is a lecturer at a Bible college in the US and he says that his students don't just pick up what, he's, what he teaches, but they pick up what he's excited about. So he might teach them the gospel, but if he's never excited about the gospel, they won't get it. You might be very excited about your upcoming holiday, uh, or you might be a great evangelist for your new television screen. Uh, you won't believe how many pixels they can squeeze into a 978-inch television. Uh, It's incredible. It has 56 inputs (laughs) for my new violet ray disc player, you know, whatever it is. You see, what you're excited about is what people pick up, isn't it? And actually what you're excited about trains the people around you to be excited about those things as well. If you're not excited about the gospel, your kids will pick that up. If you're not excited about the gospel, your colleagues will pick that up. Your friends will pick that up. Notice too how Isaac and Rebecca did nothing to speak to their children about what God had said before they were born. Rebecca had had this amazing prophecy from God. There are two nations in your womb, the older will serve the younger. And they never said anything in all those years. They never appeared to say anything to the children about what God had said. Think how different it would have been if the, in, in that family if Isaac and Rebekah had said right from the very beginning, now, now Jacob and Esau, I want you to know, normally it's the way that in a family the older gets the great inheritance. But do you know what? God has another plan. And we don't understand why he's doing it, but God has this plan that in this family, Jacob is going to get the biggest share, and Esau, you're going to have to have have the second choice. And we don't know why God is doing it, but we know that God is doing a good thing, and we're going to trust him. Imagine the difference in that family. Imagine the difference in the lives of Jacob and Esau. They would have been trained to believe and live according to the promises of God. The lives 
of Jacob and Esau, our lives are shaped by God's plan and purpose, but our lives, like their lives, are also influenced by those around us, by our parents and friends and colleagues and so on. Yet it's also important to remember that uh, both these men, both Jacob and Esau, had the exact same upbringing. They were favoured by different parents, uh, but still they both lived in the same house, and yet still they both made different decisions. They are both still 100% responsible for the decisions that they made. The Bible never allows us to say, well, you've had a bad upbringing, therefore you're excused uh, for your sin. No, we're 100% responsible for the decisions that we make. The rivalry between these two brothers reaches its climax then in the little story at the end of this chapter where we read about an episode uh, where Jacob is at home cooking a meal and Esau has been out in the field hunting. And Esau comes home uh, and finds Jacob cooking the stew and he says in verse 30, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. Uh, And Jacob, seeing this opportunity, uh, says, well, I'll give you some of that stew, but first you have to sell me your birthright. Uh, And with scant regard for what he is doing, Esau uh, says to Jacob, look, I'm about to die. You know, what's this birthright uh, going to do for me? For all his uh, rugged manliness, uh, hunting and being hairy and all the things that come with being uh, a rugged man, uh, Esau is a bit of a drama queen. He basically says, if I don't eat, I'm going to die. He's so melodramatic, in fact, that he's willing to sell his inheritance from his father just to eat. Now, you might think that that's a kind of a hasty statement, that he didn't know what he was doing, and so, uh, you know, we should give him a bit of a break. But to make sure that Esau really knew what he was doing, and Jacob just to make sure that he was really getting what he wanted... Jacob says to Esau, no, I want you to swear to me that you'll give it up. I want you to promise that you're going to give me this birthright. And so Esau swears an oath. He rejects the oath that God had sworn to Abraham with his own oath. And the narrator of Genesis gives us an insight into what Esau has just done. He says in verse 34, Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau's birthright was his inheritance as the firstborn son. And maybe Esau didn't care about that because as he looked around at what his father had, he thought to himself, well, there's not much here really, is there? After all, Isaac still didn't own any of the promised land. There's no land to inherit. What's the point uh, of the inheritance? There's no land. But crucially, the birthright that Esau rejected included God's promises to Abraham. It included the promise of the land, the promise of descendants, and the promise that one day through one of those descendants, God would put right uh, all those who trust in him. 
To despise that then was devastating. To despise that was to despise the gospel, to despise the good news that God was going to put the world right. The writer of Hebrews takes it up and says in in chapter 12 uh, of Hebrews, verse 16, he says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Don't be like Esau, he says. Don't be like Esau, who gave up the gospel promises for what? For lunch. How desperately tragic. How desperately, desperately tragic that is. Don't trade the great and precious promises of God for nothing. For trivialities. The writer of Hebrews says, see that no bitter root grows up, which sounds like what he's saying is, see that no one becomes bitter towards each other and that that causes all kinds of problems. But that's not what he's saying. He's actually alluding to something that Moses said in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 29. Moses says, make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. What, Moses? What is that bitter poison? What is that root of bitter poison? Here it is. When such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I will be safe even though I persist in my own way. What is it? What's the root of bitter poison? It's the person who says, I'll be safe even though I ignore God. They say, God's made these great promises. Well, I'll take those and I'll take everything else I want as well. Don't think that being like Esau means just giving up the gospel and becoming an atheist or an agnostic. The danger is so much more subtle than that. You just have to say to yourself, I'll be safe even though I go my own way. God's a forgiving God, isn't he? I'll be safe even though I go my own way. He'll forgive me even though I go my own way. A lonely Christian lady moves in with her boyfriend and says, I'll be safe. God won't mind. God wants me to be happy. An unhappily married man divorces his wife and goes off with another woman and he says, God won't mind. I'll be safe. A young woman goes to parties, gets drunk in the hope of hooking up with a guy. She says to herself, I'll be safe. God won't mind. A young man is attracted to other men decides to hook up with a guy and says to himself, I'll be safe, God won't mind. An old lady nurses bitterness and unforgiveness for something that happened 30 years ago. And she says to herself, I'll be safe, God won't mind. And like Esau, we tell ourselves... If I don't have it, I'll die. 
I can't possibly go on if I don't get that. I tell you, it's a great warning sign. It's a great warning sign when you say to yourself, if I don't get that, I can't go on. It's the great deceit of Satan, I think. But it's a lie. We tell ourselves that God won't mind. And worse still is when the church joins in the chorus and says, no, of course God won't mind. You go and do that. And the tragedy is that churches are doing that. I know they are. Because I hear stories about all these kinds of things. Don't do it. Don't be like Esau. It's not worth it. The soup is not worth the price of the gospel. The gospel is so rich, so precious, don't let it go. Don't let it go for anything. In fact, the gospel is so rich and precious that you can have traded it all in for a pittance. And you can still return to God and still find more than enough inheritance, more than enough atoning, atonement and forgiveness in the death of Jesus to cover all that you've done. That is, you can spend the inheritance of God and God's inheritance is so rich, so abundant, so prolific that you can always come back and always find hope and mercy in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself tells the story of two brothers and an inheritance. And in his story, one of the brothers trades his inheritance early on in life, before his father had died. He takes his money, he goes to another land, he wastes it on prostitutes and booze, and he ends up living with pigs utterly destitute. And in one moment of surprising sanity, he thinks to himself, what am I doing here? My father has more than enough. I'll go back. I'll throw myself at his feet and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your child. And he goes back and he gets within sight of home And before he has a chance to say anything, his father's running towards him. Thrown his arms around him, embraced him and kissed him. You see, you might have traded in the gospel for nothing more than a bowl of stew. But God is a God who's in the business of rescuing and redeeming people like you. People like me who've traded on God's kindness, who've traded in everything for nothing. God is a God who not just embraces us, but a God who runs and receives us when we turn and run to him. Don't be like Esau. 
But if you've been like Esau, turn back to God and receive his wonderful inheritance in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for your great gospel plan. Thank you for your great gospel plan worked out in the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Esau. Lord, thank you that you, Lord, are a God who is in control of everything. And Father, we ask that that would be a great comfort to us rather than uh, a difficult thing, a frustration, uh, something that we find hard to understand. Lord, help us to be able to look back on all that you've done in our our lives and in the lives of others and to see your mercy uh, and your kindness, your love which calls and draws and woos and compels people to come to you. And Father, we pray that we ourselves would be people who uh, turn not away from you, but turn to you. Lord, all of us in some way or other have traded on your kindness, have traded on your generosity, have traded on your compassion and traded on the gospel. Lord, every moment that we sin, we trade on the gospel. We say that what I'm getting is better than what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Oh God, have mercy on us for such a small view of the cross that you could give your own son in payment for our sins to secure us righteousness and life and eternity with you that we could think so, such small thoughts that we could embrace the trivialities of this world, the sins of this world rather than to enjoy the gospel. God, help us to be people not who stay far off in a foreign land, but people who run back, who cast ourselves at your feet and plead for your mercy. And Lord, thank you that we know that when we turn back, that you are a God who runs to us and embraces us And you are a God whose inheritance and whose promises in the gospel of Jesus Christ are so much more abundant, so much more plentiful than all our mistakes and sins and errors and faults. Father, help us to know the joy of the gospel. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.